This is Inspiring Women. I'm Laurie McGraw, and I am extremely excited to be speaking with Chelsea Clinton. And Chelsea, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Oh, Laurie, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I think this might be the only podcast interview I've done where there's background music. I feel, <laughs> you know, like I get to both be in this space with you and can also... Um, kind of be part of the larger health conference happening around us because there's so much vibrancy. There's even like pretty awesome music. Well, I don't know if it's pretty awesome music, but it's very heavy, like beep, beep music. <laughs> and so I think vibe in th at this conference is definitely that. So Chelsea, there's a lot of things for us to talk about. You are absolutely an inspiring woman. You have an enormous platform. Obviously you focus on women and children. You focus on public health. You focus on environmental um, change, climate change, as well as um, uh, the spread of misinformation and trying to quell that. So that is a lot of things, but you have big impact. So maybe let's just start of all the things that you do, the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Health Access Fund, the being an author, being a podcaster yourself, and now an investor as well. Where do you spend your time? Well, I am very grateful to be able to work with extraordinary people across kind of every dimension of what you just um, mentioned. I wouldn't be able to do kind of any of the work that I feel called to do um, in public health or in kind of protecting, promoting, amplifying um, the stories and the enterprises and the efforts, the energies, the agency of women, mm -hmm. um, if I weren't able to work with extraordinary people, admittedly most of whom are women, although there are also thankfully some men <laughs> in the mix. And so just want to acknowledge that, you know, um, life as a team sport isn't just sort of a rhetorical framing. It very much is kind of the mechanistic reality of my life. And I'm so thankful that I get to work alongside and learn with and learn from extraordinary people um, every day. I also have to acknowledge um, that I am a painfully organized and heavily calendared person. Okay. I mean, I think when I walked in, I said, you know, you were like my the ninth person I'm seeing today. <laughs> and it's goodness, like not even 2.30. Yes. Um, and so I'm able uh, to be so productive because I am a highly organized person. And again, I have thankfully extraordinary people to help me um, do that. It does mean there's not a lot of spontaneity in my yep. life. It does mean I am the person who like goes to run at like five o'clock in the morning because that's mm -hmm. where I can fit it in. Mm -hmm. um, but we also spoke before we came on air about the fact that I'm a mom. And mm -hmm. so if I'm going to be the professional that I want to be, you know, as a, an investor, as an advocate, as an author, mm -hmm. as a podcaster, you know, in my kind of philanthropic and not-for-profit work, and also most importantly, as a mom, and this is where if my husband were here, he would pipe up and be like, and a wife, and like, yes, <laughs> and a wife and partner. Um, I really do believe in the importance of having a robust calendar. I mean, I could probably tell you what I was doing on like December 13th if I pulled out my Hopefully phone and looked memory. at it. Hopefully not Hopefully by Not from memory. <laughs> um, so I realize that's not terribly sexy, but it enables me to at least have the chance uh, to be the person that I hope to be in all the ways that I express kind of my um, passion and my purpose in the world uh, on a personal level, but also a professional one. Well, I also love that what you brought in there is that you can't do it alone. And so Definitely not. with the aspirations that you have to have the impact both, you know, for who is around you within the United States, but also globally that surrounding yourself with an excellent team and paying attention to keeping yourself accountable for what Absolutely. you need to get done is important. Absolutely. And, and what we think about doing kind of within our own dominion and and where we look to partner. I'm a big believer in the 
kind of power of of partnership mm -hmm. of having kind of you know different groups of people with different areas of expertise but with a similar sense of like mission um kind of really collaborating in a consistent and coherent way and so whether that's thinking about kind of the global health work we do through the yes. Health access initiative which you were kind enough to mention earlier on everything from you know, combating um, childhood diarrhea, which still kills half a million kids around mm -hmm. the world every year, mm -hmm. or whether that's kind of who we look to partner with as co-investors with Metrodora when we're supporting yep. very early kind of companies kind of with their big ideas to help them think through how best to kind of chart that path forward. Well, I want to bring some of this conversation to Metrodora. I mean, we're here at this very like hip conference health um, here in Vegas, you know, where there's a lot of excitement around the area of innovation and particularly in healthcare, which is a critically important problem that is affecting, there's no one that this doesn't affect. So as you think about Metrodora in terms of one of the things that you do, venture fund, you have two raises that you've done, invested in a number of companies. Tell us a little bit about Metrodora, who, you know, what does the fund focus on and why did investing become an important part of the portfolio of things that you do? So there are a lot of questions in there, Lori, yeah. so I'm going to try to answer them. And if I forget any of them, please remind okay. me. Um, because I still don't think I've had quite enough caffeine today. <laughs> So, you know, at Metrodora, we're an early stage um, health and learning investment fund. Um, we look to back founders who are building to improve or disintermediate the delivery of care, skills, and information. And importantly for us, we look to back founders who are building from a place of lived experience and deep empathy. Yep. Um, so happy that we have a lot of like extraordinarily bright, smart, like white men focused on big, important, intractable challenges that confront, you know, women and kids around um, the country and across the world. And yet I really want to be investing in um, in moms who are mm -hmm. building to help tackle challenges that do disproportionately affect whether working mothers or kids. Mm -hmm. I want to be backing founders who have real lived experience of what it's like to live on Medicaid for the solutions that should better drive meaningful health equity in not only kind of outcomes, but also experience. Because mm -hmm. I think so often we don't talk about kind of the experience of historically underserved populations. And in fact, kind of working with founders who are tackling um, patient populations or learner populations that historically have been underserved is really core to mm -hmm. what um, we aim to do and what we plan to do and are doing at Metrodora. So, you know, founders of color, women founders, LGBTQ founders, founders who are tackling the unsexy challenges of how to better support community-based organizations who are working to do the unsexy work of when people get um, automatically disenrolled from Medicaid, but they shouldn't have been. How do they get re-enrolled and not get disenrolled kind of the next year? Yep. You know, a lot of the things that um, may not be positioned as kind of innovation always, but actually are hugely important innovations to help our system just work better. Or they are the connectivity, con connected totally. tissue and they're the to context. making these systems yes. work. They're the context and the connectivity um, the connective tissue, as you said, to ha hopefully help make our systems as they are today mm -hmm. kind of function more equitably and more efficiently and more effectively. Um, while also, of course, you know, we're interested in kind of what will help improve cervical cancer screening yep. or what will help improve pediatric cancer screening. So 
we too are interested in kind of maybe the bright shiny thing yep. that often is thought of as innovation, but we're also really interested in innovation in the not so sexy areas, but that can impact millions of people's lives in really durable ways that thankfully there are increasingly payment models yep. being built to kind of incentivize and compensate people for because some of the least sexy challenges are the heaviest cost on our system. Right. So Chelsea, um, in those types of ideas, first of all, there you, there's passion behind them. And so clearly you're inspired by passionate founders and CEOs who are trying to tackle these complex, maybe unsexy. I think the complex can be very sexy. Um, I in like terms hard of problems. Yes, yes. But you also know that it takes a lot more than passion to make for a successful company to have impact at the scale that the, you know, meeting the scale of the problems that need to be solved. So when you look to make investments um, in terms of, you're investing in people and ideas that allow them to really make this impact. What else beyond the passion and the idea makes for a good investment. Yeah, so I think, you know, Laura, you talked about kind of passion and idea, and we're certainly, um, you know, always excited when people, you know, can tell a passionate story about yes. kind of why they are the right person to tackle this challenge. Um, I'm always interested um, in how kind of anyone, whether kind of a founder or otherwise, um, kind of articulates what they know and what they don't know. Yes. Kind of where they have real confidence and where they have humility, mm -hmm. how they think about the decisions that um, can and should be made quickly and yes. those that need real deliberation and consideration, how they think about when do they have enough data to make a decision and when do they need more data. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think there are so many um, questions that are salient in kind of determining whether a founder is the right fit for Metrador and candidly, are we the right fit for them? We have a you know, specific skill set, and then there are plenty of things we, we don't know anything about. Sure. Um, but also I think they're the right set of questions for anyone who's looking to do something kind of new in the world, yep. whether you're kind of launching yourself kind of on a doctoral program or you're kind of building a not-for-profit or you're trying to architect a new policy. I think mm -hmm. those are all really pertinent questions. I think that they are particularly relevant you know, in a startup environment where um, you only have so much time yes. and only so many dollars to really prove whether or not you indeed are the right person to steward even an excellent idea kind of to the next stage. And I want to talk about some of the issues in particular for women and women founders and CEOs in the in the um, startup phase. But do you have any sort of like particular areas that you're excited about? So, you know, certain companies or people that you yeah. think are like ones that we should be watching out for? Sure. Um, well, a couple have been in the news recently. Um, one is Ounce of Care. Uh -huh. uh, founder, a fantastic woman named Rachel Muncy, um, based in DC, kind of building at the intersection of housing and healthcare. So partnering with some of the kind of large kind of residential developers in DC and AmeriCares, the largest um, MCO in the DC area, um, to kind of better ensure that residents are able to access kind of healthier environments at home and also access like care navigation that meets okay. their needs that isn't sort of what someone who doesn't live there yep. thinks they may need but actually kind of built from the community up like here's what we need in our community yep. and also how do you enroll in Medicaid how do you enroll in disability benefits if you qualify for those transportation benefits which is often food more benefits. complex than it needs to be and often because there are different systems mm -hmm. like even in New York where yep. I live and I'm very grateful um, to the Hochul 
um, administration and some of her predecessors who've prioritized having kind of a unified um, access point for people looking to access cash welfare benefits or social security benefits or Medicaid, it still is a deeply imperfect system. Sure. And in DC, it's even more complicated. So super excited about what Rachel is doing. And I think she really exemplifies what we were talking about earlier, like building in partnership, very mindful of kind of what she knows, mindful of where she's complimenting and on her team and beyond, very clear about how she's holding herself accountable and how she expects everyone on the table to hold herself uh, hold her accountable and also very clear about empowering people kind of from the community she's aiming to serve to actually be part of problem solving from the beginning. Okay. You know, not to kind of bolt on the patient voice or the resident voice later on, but to ensure that that voice is integrated from inception forward. Okay. So really excited about her. Also really excited about another one of our companies that's been in the news recently called ULA, yep. um, which is midwife-centered and OBGYN-supported yes. uh, prenatal and delivery care. Yes. That's how most of the world does it. That's not how we do it here. Right. Despite um, kind of evidence saying that you know, we could probably improve maternal health and newborn outcomes by up to 80% if we had more continuity of care kind of through midwifery. So really um, excited to be backing uh, women founders, Elaine and Adrian, who are building kind of on evidence basis, kind of also again, fiercely patient centric, and admittedly for me, like building in my hometown now of New York. Right. Um, to be able to partner with them, help connect them to kind of more people in the ecosystem who I knew once they knew about them would right. want to be helpful, whether from a storytelling perspective or a provider perspective or a patient perspective. Yeah, I think that area is so very important. Um, I had Sheila Monroe on the podcast yes. who is very involved in trying to bring more of those women into the practice of midwifery and doulas well, and that and how need important. more yes. people. Or, I mean, so in the U.S., um, we're probably undercapacitated, you know, by potentially like 80% right. for what we really need to ensure that every birth could be accompanied you know, in a real accompaniment sense, like with a midwife kind of through prenatal care and immediate postnatal care. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's some challenges where we have the right kind of providers, but maybe not in the right places. This is a place where we actually just need a lot more midwives and also doulas. Well, there's so much excitement that, you know, there, but the problem is not good. I mean, the problem is actually getting worse, the which is, is getting incredible. Worse. So you are now 50% um, more likely to die in childbirth than you were when I was born. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you are an indigenous woman in America, you're more than twice as likely as a white woman to die in childbirth. And yes. if you're a black woman, you're three times as likely. Yes. And if you are a black woman in New York City, you are nine times as likely. And so also something that was important to us in backing ULA was to understand their Medicaid strategy. Yes. Um, they have partnerships with dozens of payers uh, in New York, including uh, Medicaid, and 20% uh, of their, I think it may now even be 22% of their births are to moms on Medicaid. And that was really important to us. Again, we're really going to be kind of in the ethos of helping founders who are building to serve the underserved. You have to actually ensure that those founders are committed to serving the underserved. And understand those environments. I mean, the numbers are staggering and it's more than numbers. And just to hear sort of like, you know, how important the issues are to you, you can hear the passion in your voice. Let's move to, you know, more of the just funding environment, you know, itself, because women founders and CEOs are underrepresented. They're certainly underfunded. We have 
2%, I don't need to tell you all the stats, but it's 2%. No, but for anyone who's listening, you may not know. 2% of, of funding goes to women founders. Now that number goes up if you have a male count, uh, co-founder with you, but still, we're still under, well under 20% of the funding in that type of situation. So it's wonderful that you specifically look to female founders, not exclusively, but that that's an important um, area of focus. What do you think about this funding environment? Maybe not like how to solve it. It is it is what it is. Can it be solved? Are we moving in the right direction? I would say not fast enough. Yeah. Uh, well, I certainly agree um, that we're not moving fast enough. And if we look at kind of where assets under management reside, also you know less than two percent of assets are managed by women. Mm -hmm. um, it is particularly, um, I think, uh, salient in this conversation because if we think about kind of early stage funders, kind of the venture funders, right? I think I saw research from Bearings recently where it was like, you know, 1.6, 1.7% of venture funds um, are managed by women. And yes. so clearly those two percentages being so closely aligned, I don't think is an accident. Right. Um, and so I do hope that we'll see more kind of purposeful um, investment programs and, you know, explicit envelopes of funding kind of from the big institutions to kind of invest through women and to directly invest in kind of you know women enterprises mm -hmm. you know so often I'm, I'm asked questions Lori, along the lines of like well what can women do and i'm like well with all due respect we actually need men yeah like we need the people who control the assets today kind of who um hold kind of the decision making power today to kind of share that decision making power through kind of um where they choose to invest their assets. We do, but but Chelsea, you also know that um, it, it is it really is up to the person at the table, that founder, to almost force the issue. So, do you, as you as you're helping your companies, or whether it's you know the female founders, CEOs that you know, do you have specific things that you tell them that they should be doing or advice? Because I think the accountability point is such an excellent one. Yet at the same time. It's just reality, and we need to, despite the reality, still push forward. You know, Lori, I think it's um, a, a few important questions in there. I think it's, you know, what kind of should any one person do kind of in that moment when um, it's likely in this scenario, like a mm -hmm. woman sitting on one side of the table um, looking at a man or even more likely a group of men on the other side of the table, and we have enormous evidence, um, not only from this country, but you know, from Europe and Asia and elsewhere, that um, male allocators, male investors, ask uh, women founders different questions. Yes, um, talk about them differently uh, behind kind of closed doors. Have different kind of um, assessment metrics. You know, use different language. Like everything that we know um, about how to identify misogyny and sexism, we know is is pervasive here. Um, you know, even in places that often you know kind of position themselves as being structurally um, and culturally and socially normatively kind of more um, kind of gender equitable, like Scandinavia, we still see the same mm -hmm. kind of research findings. And so I do think you're right in that we have to make it more explicit. Mm -hmm. um, I also do think um, we need kind of the big institutional funders to kind of feel the pressure themselves. I think it is very challenging to ask a woman founder in that moment to, as I think you um, suggested, to sort of call it out when they're facing um, a panel of men. I think it's 
incumbent on those of us who have platforms, um, who are in positions of um, kind of voice or kind of sitting, you know, in kind of big institutions to kind of carry that water or whatever the right metaphor is kind of for well, call, women and call it out in, in and, a way that I think we need to call it out right because I think of course there are also a lot of research um, kind of back strategies for how women can you know as America Ferreira I think so beautifully did in the Barbie movie be like you know attractive enough but not too attractive mm-hmm. and smart enough but not you know too intelligent as perceived by kind of the men in any situation, whether the Ken dolls or the theoretical <laughs> men we're talking about who may or may not invest in a founder's um, startup. And yet, while being mindful of that, I, I find it very challenging when we expect people who have been on the other side of inequity mm-hmm. to be responsible for convincing people to like not be so gender biased or not be implicitly racist or not be kind of implicitly biased against people with disabilities or not be kind of ageist. Okay, so I think that, you know, the focusing on the systemic issues that are there and not being forgiving, which is what you are clearly telling us, um, that it actually isn't enough for it to be okay and just wait it out and put the pressure on the founder, the CEO to address the issues um, in a big way. And we talk about, I mean, I talked to a lot of my women founders about um, how to kind of think about being an effective communicator, yes. which if you're a woman has to encompass the ways in which you will be perceived by men and women alike. Great. How you think about communicating um, internally and externally, how you think about kind of positioning yourself as a thought partner, even if that might be threatening to kind of men in your community, how you try to kind of preempt that feeling of being threatened and also what you do if it still emerges. We absolutely have many of those conversations. And also, yes, I do not think it is fair to expect women to help men overcome their biases in the same way. Like, I don't think it's fair when we expect people who are disabled to have to prove their humanity, Mm -hmm. like in the same way that like, I think it's really deeply troubling to me. The number of times I've heard some variation of like, well, like there's so many healthy old people, like they can help destigmatize aging. And I'm like, what about? a lack of health or wrinkles or incontinence or dementia like do you find so disorienting is Mm -hmm. that because you're worried that that is your fate Mm -hmm. like why do you feel anything but what more can i do to help you have dignity and agency to be able to live out god willing however many days you have wherever you want it to be yeah yep okay all right. So using your platform to change these things, um, all in on that. And I think, you know, from my perspective on inspiring women, showcasing what it looks like and then how people have to deal in those moments um, is also important. Um, so thank you so much for making that so explicit. Um, and also that I, too, love the Barbie movie. I mean, was that not the best? It's my new anthem movie in terms no, of... No, I love the Barbie movie. I took my <laughs> older son... Um, um, admittedly, he's seven. That didn't want to imply that he's like a teenager. Um, but my little one is four. Uh, and my daughter to see the Barbie movie. And it was really interesting to me. Um, so my son's name is Aiden. Like in the movie theater, I think there were like three other guys of like any age. And I wanted to say to like the other women who were there with your daughters, like, where are your sons? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I am so proud that. Like my seven-year-old 
like thinks that like Sally Ride and Mae Jemison are like the people who went to space, right? I mean, he. I mean, if you pressed him, he could probably talk about Neil Armstrong, but like that is who he thinks of as astronauts. Mm-hmm. Um, it like it matters the stories and the role models that we tell our sons just as much as it matters the stories and the role models that we privilege to our daughters. If actually, maybe not more. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Two more things before we close out on this, and I really appreciate it, Chelsea. So um, if you could just five years ahead with all of the platforms that you work from and give voice to, give us a vision for what might be possible in healthcare in the next five years. Pick your time frame, but something sooner. Oh, goodness. Um, goodness. I hope that... Um, Everywhere in the United States, whether you're living on a reservation and you're under the aegis of the Indian Health Service or you're in the South Bronx and you're on Medicaid and your primary care comes through a federally qualified health center or you're here kind of in Las Vegas and kind of going to one of the big hospitals here, I would hope that everyone actually is receiving um, the standard of care and with kind of the level of kind of respect that we would all want for ourselves, our parents and our children. Um, Because I think one of the things that I found really challenging candidly um, over COVID was how many people were like, oh my gosh, like look at all the health inequities COVID exposed. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, actually they've just always been here. Mm -hmm. And instead of that being a moment to then think, well, wow, where do we need to be investing so that we are all safer, so that we were all part of truly like coming together as a country like that has not happened yet and i certainly hope that it will because there are many people here in the u.s who are not yet receiving the standard of care for early diagnosis and early screening whether kind of for cancer or diabetes and that are not receiving we know kind of the early kind of intervention of care that can change the trajectory of their lives and lives of of their children Um, I would like to see us not treat mental health and physical health as being kind of two discrete kind of orbits of kind of interest and investment and research. I'd like to see that integrated, more integrated in a real way. Um, I would like us to, uh, whether as kind of investors or providers or payers, um, realize that kind of we are healthcare citizens beyond kind of the aperture of where we're working um, and to not be timid and engaging with like deep public health crises that are um, so painfully idiosyncratic to the United States, our gun violence crisis, our um, substance use disorder and addiction crisis. I mean, I I wonder how many people even here at health know that um, Gun violence is now like the leading cause of death. Yes, for children in America. Yes, what is everyone here? Right, and doing now we're and we're that, wondering right? so, where mental health crisis and that is in teens is and, um, become so. And we know prevalent. that substance use disorders um, are now a leading cause of death for um, pregnant and new moms. We know that substance use disorders are now in- increasingly um, a challenge for our older American population. So. You know, I would I would like us to see um, see progress toward that of like everyone here who's innovating, kind of in thinking about kind of their dominion, whether you know as investors or kind of hospital systems researchers, you know payers, kind of think about 
what they can contribute to helping solve some of these larger kind of deeply painful contextual challenges. Yes. Um, for us, I'd like to see um, if, if we're back at health in five years, everyone talking about what they're going to do to either decarbonize or not add additional carbon mm -hmm. kind of into the environment. Um, I think um, there's awareness of kind of the healthcare segment broadly needing to do more, but not yet a lot of real action plans toward that. Um, and I'd like to see us just more broadly focused on kids. Um, we, on any metric, do not invest on a pro rata basis in children, not out of NIH research grant funding, um, not out of kind of CMMI kind mm -hmm. of areas of intention and focus, um, not certainly if we look at venture dollars. Right. Um, and so that's another area where I'd like to see significantly more um, attention, intentionality, and investment. So those are a handful of things. A handful of things, um, just just a small set of requests for this large, important audience at Health. Um, Chelsea, I really appreciate you sharing yeah. that. If we could close out on one last sure. thing. the My be, favorite color is blue. No, I don't know. Th that's the most important, <laughs> but in addition to the blue, um, you know, as a mom, how has that changed your outlook on just, you know, what you're trying to do, whether it's women and children, children, public health, whatever, just the becoming a mom, having three children, how has that impacted your view? I would say it's made me just more intense. <laughs> you know, everything I cared about before I became a parent, I care just even more intensely about today. And um, certainly, again, I'm so thankful to work on so many different areas, um, but I'm really always looking at things like through the lens of our youngest. And so whether that's kind of even investments we've made, um, I'm really excited about an investment we made last year in something called Blooming Health, uh, which is uh, kind of also connective tissue, connecting um, patients and caregivers with different community-based organizations in New York and now kind of growing beyond uh, to help people age at home and age in place with dignity and safety um, and compassion. You know, I think about that as like my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And then I think about the relationship that those grandparents can have with their grandchildren. And we know how important it is for kids' healthy development uh, that they have those types of multi-generational relationships. And so even when we're investing in kind of enterprises that I think are hugely important for other things I care about, like respect uh, for our elderly, who also I think historically have been deeply underserved in our country because of our deep discomfort with aging in the United States, it also still is so fundamentally to me about like, well, what does that then mean for the, those patient populations, grandchildren? Yes. And then what is the generational effect of being able to have those relationships be more possible for longer in a, a matter and an environment that is built on dignity? Chelsea, that's an incredible um, point that you've made. The passion is intense. You know, I want to close with just um, an enormous thank you and um, a story of my own. I'm a mother. Um, I have two children. My children were born when your father was in office. And um, my daughter, who was the first guest on this podcast, oh. which is why I started it, that's her great. name is Chelsea. Oh my gosh. She is named after you. Oh my gosh. And so this is a very full circle moment for me so to have had the opportunity to hear what you're talking about, the passion that you bring, and the opportunity to make the impact that is so necessary. I just want to thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thank you so very much. Oh my much. gosh, Lori, thank you. And um, I hope I get to meet your daughter Chelsea someday. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.